Welcome back to the program. It is the job of historians and scholars to take new and contemporary information and to give context and connection to events far beyond the time in which they happened. This is as true for wars as it is for the story of Jesus. Thus, it is no accident that for over 2,000 years, every word written about Jesus was written by people that did not know him when he was alive. It's significant to note that this was as true in the 20 years after his death as it is today. Only today we have a broader compendium of knowledge from which to draw and a keener understanding of the historical context. With respect to the Jesus story, this makes it easier in some ways to separate out the religious Jesus from the historical Jesus, and in so doing better understand the origins of Christianity in its birth time and as it has evolved for over 2,000 years. No one does this better than our guest, Riza Aslan. Dr. Riza Aslan is an internationally acclaimed writer and scholar of religious studies. He has degrees in religion from Santa Clara University, Harvard, and the University of California, Santa Barbara, as well as a Master of Fine Arts from the University of Iowa. He's a member of the Council on Foreign Relations, the Los Angeles Institute for the Humanities, and the Pacific Council on International Policy. His first book was the international bestseller, No God But God, which has been translated into 13 languages and named one of the 100 most important books of the last decade. It is my pleasure to welcome Riza Aslan back to this program to talk about his newest work, Zealot, The Life and Times of Jesus of Nazareth. Riza Aslan, thanks so much for joining us. Oh, it's a pleasure to be back on the show. Thanks for having me. Great to have you here. One of the things that that really lies at the heart of, of what you write about in Zealot is this fundamental difference between the religious Jesus and the historical Jesus. Talk first about that. Well, I mean, obviously there are billions of Christians in the world who believe that Jesus is uh, both fully God and fully man, and that's a perfectly fine belief. Um, But for me, I'm more interested in the fully man part, uh, the man who walked uh, the earth some 2,000 years ago in a land called uh, that the Romans at least called Palestine, who essentially was an illiterate, uneducated uh, day laborer and peasant from the backwoods of Galilee, who managed to form a movement that was seen as so threatening to the religious and political leaders of his day and age that he was ultimately arrested as a state criminal and executed. To me, that man is, um, well, he's more compelling and he's he's more uh, real and accessible, I think, than the the sort of celestial spirit that a lot of Christians have transformed him into. Which brings up the question about the degree to which the two stories can be conflated in some sense, because if you understand, as you talk about it, the historical Jesus, it seems more difficult to make the leap to that more more spiritual religious story. Well, I think the problem lies in the fact that if you think that Jesus was God, then you probably think that context is not important in understanding his life. I mean, he is an eternal being. His words are eternal. His actions are universal. So what does it matter, the the world in which he lived? But I think that that's a mistake, because this was a world that was perhaps the most tumultuous era in the Middle East, uh, which is, of course, saying quite a lot. And that era shaped who Jesus was. It actually informed 
his teachings, which were in direct response to the social ills that he himself faced. His actions were a, a response to the political and religious powers of his day. And so whether you a person of faith or not, whether you think Jesus is the Messiah or not, I think if you truly want to know who this individual was, you've got to know the world in which he lived because that world shaped him and his character. And working backwards, you make the argument that, that all we have to look at is the crucifixion and understand that in the context of that punishment at that time, it tells us a lot about Jesus as this Jewish political revolutionary. Yes, that's a very good way of putting it. I mean, crucifixion in the time of Jesus was a punishment that Rome reserved exclusively for the crime of sedition, or perhaps more generally, I should say, crimes against the state, like treason or insurrection and rebellion. These were the only crimes for you could be for which you could be crucified. Uh, the you know oft uh, narrated story of the thieves who were crucified alongside Jesus. Well, they weren't actually thieves. The Greek word that's used is lestai, and lestai doesn't mean thieves. It means bandits. Bandits, of course, was the most common term in Jesus' time for a rebel or an insurre- insurrectionist, excuse me. And so, in a sense, what I just argue is that if you know nothing else about Jesus except that he was crucified, you know enough to begin to question the image of him as this kind of milk-toast, inveterate pacifist with no concern for the cares of this world. That Jesus would have gone unnoticed by Rome. But if Rome thinks that you are such a troublemaker, such a rabble-rouser, that, that you need to be executed for the crime of treason, then you were probably kind of, of, a, of a problem in, in that society. And it was more than just claiming to be the Messiah. As you point out, dozens of people walked through the Holy Land of that time claiming to be a Messiah. Yes, yeah, so there were, I mean, we know, we know of at least 12 people or so, and there may have been many more, but 12 that we know of, some of whom are actually mentioned in the New Testament, many of whom, as a matter of fact, were far more successful than Jesus in his lifetime, had more followers uh, than Jesus did. But, and we can't ignore this fundamental fact, 2,000 years later, uh, we have forgotten about all those other messiahs, and there's just one who is still called Messiah. Talk a little bit about the context, what it was like in that period of time, and this relationship between the Jews and the Romans. The Palestine of Jesus was a land that was living under a brutal uh, military occupation uh, from the Roman Empire. Rome had entered Jerusalem around 63 B.C., about 100 or 67, 60 or 70 years before Jesus was born. And by the time uh, of Jesus' birth, had more or less total control, military control, over what we now refer to as Israel, Palestine, Jordan, Sinai, uh, and Syria, or really the biblical Holy Land. This was, this created a profound dilemma for the Jews, because at the heart of the Hebrew Scriptures is the command by God to cleanse this land of all foreign elements, to reserve it exclusively for God's chosen people. In fact, the Hebrew Bible uh, says that every non-worshipper of God, of Yahweh, 
must be put to the sword, that every every living thing that breeds, every man, woman, child, every ox, goat, and sheep, every tree, every farm, every meadow, every field must be destroyed uh, and, and made new again solely for uh, the nation of Israel, the chosen people. And yet, of course, a thousand years later, here are the Jews living under an imperial boot, forced to share the Holy Land with Greeks, Syrians, Romans, Arabs, uh, forced in God's own temple to uh, sacrifice animals twice a day on behalf of this pagan Roman Empire living a thousand miles away. For many Jews, this this created a, a real um, psychic trauma. And a number of these Jews actually, in fulfillment of the Hebrew scriptures, took up arms against the Roman occupation, tried to free the Jews from the yoke uh, of Roman rule, and frankly failed until the year 66 CE, so about 30-something years after Jesus' death, when all of a sudden it worked. This group of zealous, rebellious Jews uh, convinced the rest of the Jews to rise up against Rome. They managed to kick the Romans out of the Holy Land, keep them at bay for about three or four years. Uh, and then in the year 70, Rome returned. And when they returned, they slaughtered everybody. They burned Jerusalem to the ground. They raised the temple and defiled its ashes, what few Jews were left uh, uh, alive, were exiled from the Holy Land. Uh, the city itself was renamed Aola Capitolina. Um, Judaism became a pariah religion. The Jewish cult was no longer deemed a worthy cult in the Roman Empire as a result of this revolt. Now, why do I give that very long hundred-year uh, uh, description of the political world in which Jesus lived? Because Every word ever written about Jesus in the Gospels was written after 70 CE, or AD, as some people say. In other words, after the destruction of Jerusalem. And this is just a reminder that not only is the context of Jesus' time important in helping us discover who Jesus himself was, but the context of the world in which the stories about Jesus were written were also important because they help us understand how he was written about and why certain stories were told about him. Talk about that and, and how these stories, particularly those in the Gospels, came to evolve, written, as you say, by people that really never knew him. Yes, so the first gospel, Mark, is written sometime around 70 or 71. Uh, Matthew and Luke are written probably between 90 and 100 A.D. Uh, and then John, the, the final gospel, is written somewhere between 100 and perhaps a, as late as 120 A.D. So yes, the, you know, the actual people for whom these gospels are named are long gone at this point, with the exception perhaps of Luke. Many scholars believe that Luke did himself write Luke Acts, but again, Luke was not a disciple of Jesus. This is one of the sort of fundamental and problematic truths about uh, the, the early Christian community is that the people who knew Jesus, who were his disciples and his apostles, who walked with him and talked with him, who prayed with him, who shared his bread, who were there when he launched his ministry and were there when he was, he was captured and crucified, these were illiterate peasants just like Jesus. 
they could neither read nor write, let alone expound uh, complex theological doctrines. So it, the, that task really fell to the next generation, the next two generations, really, of Jesus' followers, who, unlike these Aramaic-speaking peasants in, in Judea and Galilee, were primarily Greek-speaking, educated, urban, cosmopolitan Jews living in the diaspora in these Greek and Roman cities like Antioch and Alexandria, Philippi and Galatia, Rome, um, and whose conception of the world, who's, frankly, whose conception of Judaism was deeply influenced by uh, Roman and Hellenistic religious traditions. And as they began to uh, think about and write about Jesus, and perhaps more importantly, began to do so distinctly for a non-Jewish audience, for a Gentile audience after the destruction of Jerusalem, they began to steadily transform Jesus from the, this Jewish revolutionary peasant who tried to take on the greatest empire in the world and, and ultimately lost into a kind of Romanized demigod, a celestial spirit, which frankly made sense for Rome. This is a kind of individual or kind of spiritual figure that Rome is familiar with. After all, Caesar is a god-man. The idea of a god-man was not a foreign concept to them at all. It was something they were very comfortable with. Yes, so, I mean, this is true. I mean, the, the notion of a god-man, which of course is ultimately what uh, Christian theology decides about Jesus, that he is God incarnate, fully God and fully man. And so as a result of that, I think it's important to recognize that while the Romans would be very familiar with that concept, the Jews would not be. Indeed, in 5,000 years of Jewish scripture, history, and thought, the notion of a God-man simply doesn't exist. Uh, I mean, it, it in a sense, kind of violates everything that Judaism is about. It's, it is thoroughly anathema to the way that Judaism thinks about God and the relationship between God and humanity. The incarnation becomes a distinctly Greek idea, uh, peddled by Jews, but Greek-speaking Hellenized Jews uh, who were very comfortable with the kind of syncretism that comes from living uh, in these uh, Roman environments. It really creates this Messiah as a kind of Roman or, or even Greek demigod. Yes, which again is something that the Romans are perfectly comfortable with. I, I mean, I, I often say, and I don't mean to be flip about it, but if, if what your task is, is to preach the message of Jesus, not to Jews, but to Romans, well, you've got to do three things, okay? Number one, you have to make Jesus just a little bit less Jewish than he is. It becomes very difficult to convince uh, Romans, particularly you know, Roman intellectual elites, to uh, abandon their religions and their gods and instead to follow the, a religion uh, that was founded by some Jewish peasant uh, you know, in the backwoods of Galilee. So, number one, you have to tone down the Jewishness of Jesus. Make, make his words and actions uh, more universal, less Jewish in their context. And so, phrases like, turn the other cheek, uh, become uh, 
stripped of their Jewish context, stripped of the, the context in which they were spoken and, and in which Jesus meant them, which is the context of the Torah, the law of Moses, uh, and instead become these abstract universal principles that all peoples everywhere can abide regardless of their religious or, or ethnic persuasions. Number two, you have to make Jesus a little less revolutionary. I mean, after all, the sentiments that Jesus professes in, in the Gospels and in his teachings uh, sound suspiciously like the same kinds of sentiments that resulted in the Jewish war in the first place. And, you know, this, is, this was a revolution that was just bloodily quelled by Rome. You've got you to gotta temper those revolutionary sentiments in, in Jesus' teachings, uh, try to make him less a political figure and more just kind of a celestial figure. The kingdom of God is not a kingdom on earth, it's a kingdom in heaven, etc., etc. And then finally, and perhaps most uh, importantly and consequentially, you have to remove all blame from Rome for Jesus' death. And hence, we get this slow, steady progression from the Gospel of Mark to the Gospel of John, in which Pilate, the governor uh, of Rome in Jerusalem, is essentially forgiven of all responsibility for the crucifixion. We have this moment in which Pilate literally washes his hands of the entire affair. In the Gospel of John, Jesus himself uh, personally absolves uh, Pilate of all guilt and lays that guilt squarely on the heads of the Jews. In fact, in the Gospel of John, the Jews uh, openly say that they and only they will accept blame for Jesus' death. They say, may his blood be on our heads and on our children's heads and on our children's children's heads. Hence, forming, uh, perhaps unintentionally, perhaps not, the basis for 2,000 years of, of Christian anti-Semitism. That's a Jesus that the Romans can, can rally to, a non-revolutionary, slightly less Jewish uh, you know, a leader, celestial spirit, who was killed not by Rome, but by the Jews. What do we know about the image, by contrast, that Jesus had of himself, how he saw himself in this time? That, of course, is an, a very difficult question to answer. It's the million-dollar question, because we don't really have uh, a lot of access to Jesus' self-consciousness. What we have is what other people wrote about him. And we know how his disciples thought about him. We know how the early church thought about him. We know uh, what you know his detractors in the first, second, and third centuries thought about him. But to get to what Jesus thought about himself requires what I refer to as kind of a thought experiment. And it begins with recognizing this fundamental fact about who Jesus was, a fact that seems obvious, but whose consequences are actually uh, quite surprising. And that fact is that Jesus was a Jew. Again, we all recognize that Jesus was a Jew, but there are consequences to that fact, which means that the only religion that Jesus would have had any familiarity with is Judaism, the Jewish cult, the temple cult. The only scriptures that Jesus would have been familiar with were the Hebrew scriptures, the Old Testament. The only God that Jesus would have had any experience of would have been Yahweh, the God of the Bible, the Hebrew Bible, or the Old Testament, as it's sometimes referred to. And 
that means that every claim that Jesus makes about himself has to be analyzed through the Jewish context in which he lived and spoke. Uh, so, you know, I, again, at that point, it's really up to the individual how they define what Jesus thought of himself, as long as you constantly remember that whatever Jesus said, he said as a Jew, not as a Christian. So, I mean, one of those claims that Jesus makes in, in the fourth gospel, the gospel of John, a very late gospel, that he himself is God, that if you've seen the Father, you've seen him, becomes somewhat difficult to sustain historically because that would have been a very unusual thing for a Jewish peasant to say. In other words, he would not have had the, the framework, the, the context in his Judaism to have even formulated such a thought, let alone to claim it for himself. Now again, Christians would say, well, that's because he was God incarnate and he was speaking outside of any kind of context, be it political or religious. That is a perfectly fine belief. I don't have a problem with that. But again, if we're only talking about this historical person and what can be known about him, we must begin with this one fact that leads to everything else. Jesus was first and foremost a Jew. One of the things that, that you also talk about is this sense of literalism that, that we some people embrace today, that literalism with respect to the Gospels is a relatively new concept. Talk a little about that. Yes, this I think would be kind of surprising for a lot of people, Christian and non-Christian, who I think assume that reading the Bible as literal and inerrant was something that everyone did, really from the time of Jesus to now. But that's of course not true. Literalism is a very new phenomenon. It is in fact a response to the scientific revolution and more uh, specifically to Christian liberalism which arose out of the scientific revolution. We as a society came to the conclusion that that which is true is that which can be empirically verified. That was the whole point of, of, the, of the scientific revolution. Well. For a lot of Christians, this created a dilemma, because what that means is unless the claims of the Bible can be, quote-unquote, empirically verified, then they are not true. And that created a schism in the Christian uh, community. Uh, what we now sort of generalize as Christian liberalism arose, a desire to read the scriptures in a, in a philosophical and, and, uh, and sort of fundamentally metaphorical way. Um, and secondly, and as a result of the same, same movement actually, a reversion to what was referred to as the fundamentals of the faith an attempt to actually impose literalism on the scriptures so that it can fit the new definition of quote-unquote truth. And hence the term fundamentalism arose at the end of the 19th century, the beginning of the 20th century, actually, ironically, in the United States first and foremost, though it was, uh, it has had its roots in, in Europe. The problem, of course, is that we are then trying to read the scriptures in a way that they were never intended to be read. I mean, all you have to do is look at the fact that there are four Gospels in the canon. I mean, these four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, 
Luke and John contradict each other in numerous ways. Um, Matthew and Luke have completely different uh, infancy stories. John says Jesus was uh, you know, killed on a completely different day than Matthew, Mark, and Luke do. Uh, Matthew and Luke have two totally different years for Jesus' birth. Luke says that Jesus was born in 6 CE. Matthew says Jesus was born in 4 BC. So my question to those literalists is, do you think that the church fathers who put these four Gospels together 